Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It's a Brother, Brother podcast today. And today we are talking about ELO, the Electric Light Orchestra. You can now listen to episodes on the BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. You can also interact with us directly through the TalkBack feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at BrotherPod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now... Let's talk about the Electric Light Orchestra. Brother, brother, brother pod, and uh, tonight is a brother, brother pod. So Wyndham and I um, talking about, I would say guilty pleasure, but I think there's no guilt in either of our pleasure listening to this band and group from the 70s, and uh, we're going to do an episode on ELO, a band that I uh, I think of firmly in the classic rock camp and enjoy pretty much every track, but it's always been kind of a greatest hits band to me um and i know when and christian just wrapped last week's episode talking about greatest hits albums but this one falls squarely in that camp for me and Wyndham, on the other hand uh grew up with lynn and wood and the boys so yeah, um, i don't i don't it does you know, it does fall into the greatest hits category from almost everybody um you know and it's the same complaint i have about jimmy buffett other than ELO is great and Jimmy Buffett's horrible, but you really do only hear the same 10 songs all the time. And, um, you know, they're great 10 songs, but, uh, you know, they're culled from uh, about 10 albums or, you know, 8 to 10 albums. So it really is, I guess, the definition of what most people think of as a greatest hits band. I happen to have had several of their full albums, so I go a little bit uh, deeper with them and break out the... uh, the sort of second tier of hits fairly frequently. Um, but going back, uh, Jeff Lynn uh, grew up in Birmingham, was obviously a uh, pre, you know, predisposed to, to being a musician. Um, he was in a band called The Idol Race uh, in 1970. Uh, then was so asked, was that a known entity? Or was that yeah, they a, were, uh, you know, they were sort of, you know, again the mid tier. Um, you know, they got attention. They got they made records um, in the same vein as like T- Tyrannosaurus Rex did before T Rex happened, or or you know, um, you know, sort of early Small Faces that kind of stuff. They were they were a band that was that you know had some chart. You know, had some songs chart toward you know the usual. It was a pretty small uh, pocket of of bands. You know, someone like uh, the kind of bands that you always see behind the music that like Rob Halford was in before he was in Judas Priest. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> like flowing and you robes and shit. Know the song. You're like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But uh, 72, he's asked to join the move and negotiates kind of a weird deal with Roy Wood from the move. He said, OK, you know, they sort of hashed out this notion that they wanted to do 
a second band uh, that he would join the move, but he wanted to um, have a second band that they could sort of test drive this merging of classical music with rock and roll that Jeff Lynne uh, sort of uh, took as a continuation of what the Beatles had started to do and hadn't finished. Um, I don't think he was going to be happy until. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to stop the record right here because yeah. this is uh, this is some juicy. Uh, Info on ELO that I didn't didn't know. Um, the fact that they had albums I didn't know until I uh, you know went to a thrift store and, and found one that still had a uh, a cutout uh, um, spaceship ELO spaceship uh, mobile that I strung up in my home. So. <laughs> but um, that said, so Lynn, I know the, the I always talk about the Beatles with strings, right? Like that's kind of the yeah. I mean, that was a tagline almost, right? I mean, for Jeff Lynne, or that was his vision? His vision was this sort of, you know, these progressions that had been made. I think probably, you know, the progress that had been made in engineering music and and recording music at Abbey Road with, um, you know, George Martin and taking what the Beatles had started to do on the experimental side, but more on the orchestrated side. He's not, he wasn't, I wouldn't call Jeff Lynne an experiment you know, an experimental musician by any stretch, although nobody had done this uh, melding before of of actual, you know, sort of classic musicians playing rock. What was the sound music. of the move? Was that more glam rock? You know, what's funny is um, back in ooh, probably the early 90s, I went and saw Cheap Trick at uh, 19, you know, fellow Beatles acolytes, Cheap Trick at uh, Tramps in New York, and they brought out Roy Wood. Uh, and did a bunch of move songs. But if if you know, the move was kind of the you know very heavy on the Paul McCartney side of of Jeff Lynne's uh, inclination towards Beatles and uh, classic. Like Jeff Lynne is pretty heavy on the Paul McCartney. Oh hell side yes! I mean, it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's you know, it is uh, nearly outright theft. But um, but you know, where Cheap Trick sort of. Uh, you know, idolized the move. That was their favorite band, and they were so excited. They were obviously, palpably so excited to have Roy Wood on stage with them. It was it was pretty funny because nobody in the audience knew who Roy Wood was at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, the move was kind of a little bit pastoral, a little bit psychedelic, but mostly you know, Paul McCartney uh, infused pop rock, like Cheap Trick ultimately became. Got it. But. So the the interesting part is, though, that Jeff Lynne did conspire, I guess, to start a second band with Roy Wood while Roy Wood's primary band was still going on. And apparently the, the falling out came because Jeff Lynne dedicated zero of his time to the move and all of his time to this electric light orchestra that he had uh, dreamed up and created. So uh, Roy Wood, Bev Bevan... Um, and uh, uh, Richard Tandy from uh, various pieces of, of Idol Race and The Move uh, all were in ELO. And then Roy Wood left after the first album and a sort of falling out over where Jeff no. Lynne's attention lay. And now is in obscurity occasionally getting pulled on stage by Cheap Trick. Yeah, and the, um, the, the, but the, it's funny. The first couple ELO albums, and this is back in the day when people would sign contracts, uh, there would be an expectation that they would put out an album every year, every nine months even. And mm-hmm. um, But they also had you know the sort of A&R 
uh, window or bubble to sort of grow into who they became. And the first two Yellow records are are not phenomenal. They're not uh, regarded as being anything other than the sort of seedlings of what they ultimately became. It was uh, apparently a rough road uh, going from Beethoven and Bach to the Beatles uh, in one record. So, you know, they, they have a couple of... Uh, the uh, white, a white suit and an afro. Totally. Well, I, think um, the, I think the afro might be, uh, might be um, indigenous to, to Jeff Lynne's head. <laughs> I mean, this is a band that, you know, like I said, opening up it, for my age group is just, you know, it kind of falls in that classic rock, super catchy, super poppy. But at the time, you know, we're talking, what, 72, 73, 74, right? Their first Every year albums. in the 70s, basically. Basically, yeah. So and you're also coming off, um, you know, the Zeppelin and, and kind of the, the rock and roll bluesy. Uh, era too so I mean how these guys were were not popular with the uh, with the, the intellectual critic types, they were, right? yeah I think there was um, you know there there's that scene in uh, um, spinal tap where they're going through the various reviews of of spinal tap records from <laughs> history you know shit sandwich and um, there's one where uh, Spinal Tap has done a gospel record, <laughs> and I forget what uh, um, it was. Something along the lines of, and on the seventh day, you know, God, you know, uh, decided to strike. To, I forget the the joke, which is, you know, sort of ruins the whole thing. But um, essentially, there was a lot of that kind of uh, press around them. You know, this was bloated and pretentious and silly. And it, on and top God of that, it, fun it was and listen to ball. it was well, it was an out and out Beatles ripoff on top of it. So, yeah. um, you know, it was sort of like people who were disappointed that the Beatles were gone were pissed that there was a half-assed version of the Beatles who thought that they were also <laughs> the London Symphony Orchestra, um, and it didn't fly. Critics fucking hated them. Um, I cool. never. I mean, it's hard to tell what Jeff Lynne is thinking behind. The fro and glasses, but yeah. he never struck me as somebody who gave a shit. It seemed no, like these guys kind of came out and did what they did. I think he was pretty confident worried. in his own vision, which is why, you know, he yeah. uh, ultimately didn't, you know, the, his band, there was a revolving cast in this band. I'm not sure that um, he was a great sharer of, of uh, credit and or um, responsibility. Cash. Seemed like, you know, he was producing all this stuff too. So, um, yeah. so you know, obviously a fairly advanced you know, regardless of what you think of the tunes, the production on it's pretty spectacular, um, you know, through the 70s, and that's all him. Uh, you know, obviously he becomes a very big producer later on as well. But one of the funny anecdotes that I that I dug up when I was looking at this is, um, you know, you people forget now the divide between the U.S. and the U.K., and, and part of the reason why I'm uh, hesitant to assign years to these things is because, you know, when I was a kid, an album would come out, in 1970 in England, it would come out in 72 in America, and it was the same album. They just needed, you know, the distribution and all that stuff. It was just, a, it, there was always a two-year delay um, between what I was listening to and what my friends in England were listening to. And um, the first album by ELO is self-titled, but in America, it came out as No Answer because the secretary from the record company called England to find out what the name of the album was and they said well, what did they say and she said no answer <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> it wasn't even a joke it just was a fuck up 
So yeah, it's kind of great. great. So the first ELO album in America is called No Answer because of a of a um, clerical error. Um, but that said, they, they sort of got their shit together. Showdown was kind of their first minor hit, uh, which was on their third album. And then El Dorado, they had their big breakout, which was Can't Get It Out of My Head, yeah, which is a great... I, I mean, it's my kind of tune. It, it's just a great uh, Beatles yeah, ripoff. No. <laughs> In the same no, vein as, I mean, like, Hello, It's Me. There's nothing... I mean, that's the thing about ELO <laughs> to me is um, there's no debate, really, right? You know, they're not... I mean, I guess if I had just lived through the Beatles and was, you know, uh, angry about it, sure. But, like, for the most part... Um, they're just good, you know? Like, I don't, I don't find... And maybe you do it with your age, but I don't find a lot of people that can argue against ELO. I don't, but I did, I did see their... Much like the Bee Gees, I saw this long period in between, which you don't really probably remember, yeah. where they were just not taken seriously. Well, A, not taken seriously. Or the Bee Gees case, absolutely maligned. I mean, I saw the Bee Gees live in 1990, and yeah. it was a great show, but, I mean, it was... A third full no respect. You know, we were doing mudslides in the in the out you know in the <laughs> back of the um, in the grass you know general admission seating section because there was just nothing you know there was nobody there except uh, a bunch of really really uncool old fat ladies and um, but I think ELO kind of fell into the same hole and I kind of remember the revitalization of ELO was, oddly enough, uh, on the back of one of my least favorite of their songs. Uh, it's when Mr. Blue Sky somehow yeah. became the soundtrack to everything. I mean, it was... I remember it no, was... And I, I, what was the movie with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet? Um, Spotless Mind. Was, um, yeah. And that, the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah. And the, but then it was that, in like that, 10 commercials after that. It was the weirdest thing. No, I know. Thing. But that that preview, I remember being kind of one of the like early... It was a great trailer. Really hip. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, that song is not that great, actually. And I, I like... And it's a song that has a really neat part that is perfect for a movie trailer. I love the beginning of that song. And then I could, you know, and I could take it or leave it. Exactly. But, but that yeah, pounding... You're right. And I remember thinking, because it was way before, you know, being able to look these things up, or not way before, but it was before I looked it up, like, who is that? You know, and, and knowing ELO, you know, and all the hits and stuff. It's, it's almost akin to what uh, Russian Dolls did this year with Gotta Get Up by Harry yeah. Nielsen. It's, it's, totally. uh, it's the best possible way to start a show. Um, no, in Russian Dolls' case, I'm not sure it was the best way to start every show or no, uh, four not. times a show. But um, yeah. I almost I was I almost got sick of that song. It's one of my favorites. I was going to say, yeah, it's very hard for me to get sick of that song, <laughs> and, I, uh, and I had decided to stop watching Russian Dolls instead. But uh, it, but in terms of Mr. Blue Sky, it really kind of you know it kicked into into gear. It was around the same time that like the Elephant Six bands were coming. Mm-hmm. Up and bands like of Montreal and you know these guys that were a generation away from the politics of liking ELO were able to really embrace the sound of ELO. Um, yeah, it's funny you say that because it's it's really hits that time period. I was actually um, in Texas at that time, like in Austin, that kind of late '90s, early 2000s, I guess. Yeah, and. Um, and I do remember, like, it being just a constant, like, you know, was, you would hear yellow in bars, you would hear, you know, it, I guess it was, quote unquote, sort of what the kids were listening to again, or the hipsters, and, and, uh, and that's what, I guess that, that's where I come to them from, you know, so I mean, 
album-wise, yeah, Can't Get It Out of My Head as a hit, and then it just was like from there, right? Then it was just an avalanche of hits. right? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, Can't Get It Out of My Head. The next one... uh, Get Your White Cello Out and... Yeah, well, that's a funny thing, and and we'll go to take a quick break after this, but, um, you know, anecdotally speaking, the, you know, my, I think I've, as I've said before to a number of people who, but, but, um, you know, my father was a, uh, a devout, uh, uh, customer of a bar in Los Angeles called Yield Kingshead in Santa Monica. And it was basically a, a just a hangout for all the Brits. And so I mean, you'd occasionally see you know, famous people in there, Mick Fleetwood or Tom Jones or whatever. But one of my dad's good friends was a guy named Hugh McDowell, who was the cellist for ELO. And nice. so the first like rock star I ever met in my life was uh, the cellist for ELO. And were you so, keenly aware of that at the time? Pretty low, uh, pretty low impact uh, in terms of rock stardom. Yeah, I was because my dad told me like every time I met him. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, but you know, I would hang out and play darts with Sarah, you know, our sister, and and then you know those guys would be hanging out and it was just a, you know, it was just a buddy of my dad's, but it was still like when I got home, I'd be like, well, I know ELO, you know, it was like, it was a very cool thing. You know, of course, yeah. um, it was about as glamorous as it sounds knowing the cellist for ELO, but it, it, you know, for me, it was like the first time I realized that, you know, these people weren't like from the moon, that they were actually just guys that drank in pubs. Nice. What's uh, what what track do you want to hear, and then we'll come back and uh, talk a little more yellow. It's funny. I'm gonna uh, second half. I'm going to uh, throw on a, a rarity because um, actually I'm going to throw on a song that ELO did, um, but it was actually a move song originally. Do ya by uh, from ELO from uh, New World Record. Jeff Lynn and ELO, uh, one of uh, Wyndham's childhood faves, and uh, my early twenties rediscovery in a band that you just really can't hate. Sorry. Yeah, it was, um, it's funny. My, go ahead. I think my first forty-five, if I'm not mistaken, was actually "Strange Magic" by ELO, uh, followed closely on the heels by a numerous uh, Wings forty-fives. But you know, when, in the days when I used to go. Um, and this is when I start to sound like I'm 107 years old. Like, uh, you know, we used to go to the soda fountain and, um, but we did, I did used to go to the drugstore and buy 45s, 
Um, I had, I think I was the beneficiary of a couple of several. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I, but, uh, strange magic was the, one of the first ever that I bought. And, um, on the same album as evil woman, which is it really, yeah, what, was, what I mean, is evil woman, the biggest hit they had or was no living thing. I mean, they have so many, <laughs> they had a lot of hits. Uh, yeah, don't bring, don't me, bring down, me down. I think I think they hold yeah. the record. If I'm not mistaken, I read somewhere that they hold the record for the most most top forty hits of all time without a number one song. Wow, without a number one. Correct. Yeah, which sounds very ELO. Yeah, because there wasn't really like a, <laughs> I mean, and again, so Jeff Lynn entered my life with the Traveling Wilburys, right? So yeah. I didn't know who the hell he he was. The guy I didn't know mm-hmm. who he was. Who he was the he weird was guy with the front. Yeah. So, I mean, when ELO in their prime was Jeff Lynn, it doesn't strike me as a uh, charismatic front man. I mean, minus a good look. Well, we'll, we'll get to the, to the Traveling Wilburys part because it was, I was mystified by the fact that Jeff Lynn was in that, too. I didn't think okay, he was held in high enough regard to be rubbing shoulders with Dylan and George Harrison. I mean, I thought... And Roy Orbison. I, I thought Petty was a bit of an interloper on that, too. But, oh, you know, totally. I mean, at that time. At the time. Certainly. And, yeah. um, you know, but it turns out they were just a bunch of buddies that like doing this. Um, but, well, yeah. it was his kind of uh, doing, though. It was Jeff too, Lynn. Yeah, it? Jeff Lynn was yeah. producing Cloud Nine and um, Roy Orbison's comeback, uh, Mystery Girl, at the same, around the same time. And I think probably from a home studio and, you know, sort of started putting people together. Um, I don't know the exact, uh, you know, lineage of, of how the... Uh, Bob, I've got a friend, Tom. Yeah. I mean, well, Petty was, was touring with Dylan and the Dead at that point. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, a, a show that I ruefully saw. But, um, you know, getting back to the 70s before we get to the 80s... Um, you know, this is when they just had an onslaught and really became like the biggest band in the world. But if you think back, like Evil Woman is the first one where you really hear that signature, yeah. like over the top ELO string, yeah. you know, yeah. section where there's like 500 tracks, it sounds like at the same time. Also during yeah, this. Yeah, very like, like Steely Dan, Boston, not the same, not in sound, but in that studio. Wizardry, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I, you know, I think it's worth pointing out is that Kelly Grauket, who was the uh, bass player for the band, was really was kind of. I mean, he's billed as a backup singer, but there's almost always two lead vocals on every ELO song. It sounds yeah. like Jeff Lynne twice because Kelly Grauket, I think, sounds a lot like Jeff Lynne. But it really was uh, intentional and strategic to have two lead singers almost, you know, singing equally all the time. Uh, Jeff Lynn going a slightly higher register in falsetto, a la Barry Gibb, and Crockett sort of keeping the, uh, it's hard to say he was keeping the lower end because his lower end was pretty fucking high. <laughs> but, um, they were really kind of singing the same, the same thing at the same time, which is an interesting, you know, sort of strategy. Yeah, rather than overdubbing track, which I'm sure they did too. But which they, they also uh, did about a thousand times. Yeah. But then, you know, New World Record, you get Living Thing, Do Ya, Telephone Line, which is a... I mean, Jeff Lynne is a good singer. He's a really good singer. Because that's the thing about ELO is they do, I mean, you hit a high note with all of their songs. I mean, every time I think of them, there's, I mean, a, 
definitely ranges I'm not hitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they they do that consistently throughout their their singles. Yeah. Then out of the blue, you got Sweet Talking Woman, which was a big hit. Turn to Stone, which is a huge hit. Discovery, you get Shine a Little Light and Last Train to London, which are really like straight ahead, flat out disco tunes. And then, yeah, that's the other thing I was going to ask actually, because I know aside from critics hating them at the time, um, did they kind of like straddle that disco rock line? Yeah, well, I mean, or, I think Discovery. Maybe not the rock line, but the disco line. At least. Well, I mean, if you think about it, they were built for disco. I mean, all of a yeah. sudden there were all these synths. Because I think strings. of them as kind of dancey. Yeah, there were all these synth strings that were being, you know, created that are fake. You know, the the sort of, uh, you know, I think the classic sound of that, I mean, it comes a little later in like the arrhythmic Sweet Dreams, that whole string arrangement. But a lot of, you know, the Gloria Gaynor stuff and and all that stuff that had all those strings, those were all synth strings. This was the dawn of the synth string. And basically rendered obsolete what Jeff Lynne had done, but basically built on what Jeff Lynne had done, which is, but you know, a futurist. heavy duty string arrangements, um, you know, brought to life. I mean, there was, a, I think I told you a while back, but, you know, there's a time when ELO couldn't tour because they couldn't, because their orchestral instruments would get so drowned out by their electric instruments. And they ultimately figured out a way to put pickups on their cellos, violas, you know, uh, violins. And, um, Voila! They were and they were a stadium band, but um, electric light orchestra. They were the electric light orchestra, Um, but you know, like I said, Discovery was a very disco-y album. It came out just before the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Had Shine a Little Light, Last Train to London. Everybody was doing disco, but it also had Don't Bring Me Down, which Mm -hmm. is not a disco song. Uh, No, it's, it's a rocker. It's a disco era song, but it's a great. Song and I think that's kind of it's a song that really sums up the '70s. It's perfect movie music. It's perfect. uh, You know, it's like there's a few songs that like almost are a movie to me, and Mm -hmm. that's one of them. Yeah, like I can just see the pile of cocaine, the amazing wardrobes, and uh, yeah, ready to go. That's I think ultimately what happened to the mustache is it just it just stored too much cocaine, so I think everyone started (laughs) shaving after a while. But you know you can't you can't knock uh, or you can but you can't uh, look past the uh, the style of this band too. I mean, just all the white guys with the giant stacked curly hair and the handlebar mustaches. It is like the so ultimate seventies looking band. Yeah, no, for sure, and, and album covers and every. I mean, everything. They were just. That's, so, everything that's why were. I meant when I said he just didn't give a fuck in the sense that like. Um, did not seem to be a guy that was swayed by what was uh, happening in the day, or he he was what was happening in the day, but not. I don't think he cared what critics thought. Street cred, was, yeah, like didn't care if he had cred. Yeah, I mean, he seems he seems to have come out on top of the. Uh, well, which is Jeff Lynne kind Lister of an band. interesting way <laughs> to hit up the '80s because, like I said, his intro to me was was um, through the Trevor Wilburys, which in turn means that he kind of shifted from this, you know. Uh, joke, I guess, in the in the music circles, which he probably never was with musicians because he's a producer and, and very talented, into producing a lot of the you know '60s legends. Yeah, right? well, I think you know you can't you can't. Uh, much he did the George same. Harrison's big comeback album. He, he did, did Cloud he did. Nine. But yeah. one thing you have to understand is that you know much the same as the Bee Gees, who you know went on from uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever to do one of the most disastrous movies in the history of movies, which was uh, Sgt. Pepper's 
Lonely Hearts right. Club Band, the movie. <laughs> and it really, I mean, it, you Good talk idea. about being on top of the world and then like a massive free fall. ELO didn't appear in Xanadu, but they did have the soundtrack for Xanadu. Oh, that's right. Which yeah. I actually like. Um, I, Xanadu is, I have fond memories of Xanadu, so. I like um, the, I mean, the movie is absolute horseshit. I mean, it's oh, so sure. bad. But I was like, I think eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you weren't. You were <laughs> she was, five and four when it came out. Yeah, I remember um, that. Um, but it, uh, but ELO did half the soundtrack. Olivia Newton John did half the soundtrack. And yeah. frankly, the Olivia Newton John songs probably stand out to me more. But I'm sure the ELO songs have some gems in there. The music is good. Um, you know, it may have, you know, maybe a little bit cheesy, but, but the fact of the matter is the movie was so horrifically bad yeah. and just being associated with something that kind of resembles in a lot of way, kind of mirrors in a lot of way, uh, you know, Robert Stigwood's and it was Robert Stigwood again, um, Robert Stigwood's attempt at making Sergeant Peppers into a movie. I mean, it's just, if you want just, a visual summation of what cocaine does to the creative process, I was just going to say, I can just give so you like much four cocaine. movies. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, between this, that don't stop the music with the village people. And, uh, there's probably one or two others, but, um, Anyway, I'm, I, I realize I'm, I'm dominating, but we this does bring us to, uh, you know, where he ultimately landed after Yellow Brook in '86, which is producing Roy Orbison and then George Harrison's comeback album Cloud Nine, and ultimately that was became the Traveling Wilburys. Yeah, and I mean, I think he he is now kind of known, I think, to a whole different group as Jeff Lynne, the producer. I, I we both mentioned earlier that. He was the one guy that I, I think I had to be told who he was in the Trevor Mulberries because it was a you know super group for those of you who don't remember the Trevor Mulberries. But um, Trevor Mulberries, um, if you Bob don't, Bob Dylan, Petty, and they actually had two great songs, you know. And I think that uh, that he, he, I mean, Lynn's love for the Beatles, and I felt like maybe it was George Harrison, maybe it was Lynn, but my assumption is it was kind of Lynn really kind of pushed that those guys in that direction, and he produced some of Petty's later stuff as well, um, not. All of my favorite Petty stuff, but I think he did Wildflower. He did uh, Full Moon really Fever good, and Wildflower. Yeah, yeah, which has some really good tracks on him, mm-hmm. um, and are, are good like it, uh, solo records. It's the part of Petty's career that where he crested into an area I didn't love because um, I do. No, love. me either. But I've gone back and listened <laughs> to especially Wildflowers, and there's some. It's not a perfect album, and it's not nearly as good as the Heartbreaker stuff to mm-hmm. me. But there, it's a much better record than I gave it credit for back in the day. Do you have like Rebels and? Um, oh, it's stuff like oh, I won't no, back I down, won't. and um, I won't back down is Full Moon Fever, which is a great thing. Yeah. But yeah, so Lynn is, I guess, working with all those guys. I'm, I'm, you know, and I, I don't know whether or not he. I, I should know, but I don't know whether he produced, you know, Dylan's '90s comeback records. But uh, somehow Bob Dylan, through Petty, found his way into the Traveling Wilburys, and uh, you know, sadly, Just to harmonize. Yeah, exactly. Um, sadly, you know, one of the, right after that album came out, or maybe right before that album came out, um, Roy Orbison died of a heart attack yep. at a very young age. I mean, for what we consider young now, 40, I think he was still in his 40s. And um, actually, Paul, my wife, saw his very last show, which was oh, nice. in Boston at the Channel. Well, um, I also would say that uh, Lynn introduced Roy Orbison to another generation. Too. Absolutely. I mean, because uh, he was 
a lost guy at that point. I mean, certainly a classic, but not but he was playing player. he was playing riverboat casinos and totally. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, much the same as Johnny Cash was in that era, and yep. I think you know almost that in a way I would give Jeff Lynn credit that career resurrection a little bit of credit for um, because Jeff Lynn is a is a musical thief and so is Rick Rubin is a musical cipher as we know um you know I would give I would give him credit for you know sort of Rick Rubin's notion of of bringing back these classic artists and and you know doing the American recording stuff George Harrison album was a massive hit too massive and uh that was Lynn and And Petty was I think, you know, I mean, Petty was always big, but I, he was definitely going through a period, you know, mm-hmm. and that was his, in a sense, his comeback, too. It was a, well, it was more of a transitional period. He was, yep. you know, he had never, Petty, weirdly, had never really fallen off the map. He just, this was a time of reinvention when he went from, you know, r- you know, sort of arena rock guy to uh, more of a um, contemplative, like, uh, singer-songwriter period and you know yeah. aged gracefully i think that was the sort of cornerstone to the wilburys is that this was uh you know each one of them in their own way sort of um uh, how for however long they they uh yeah, lived after them. they they sort of aged gracefully cool well um i don't know how much more you have to say about ELO win but uh, we're kind of i could gush all day close but to that marker and uh, yeah. i i Personally, I'm going to go and listen to some ELO albums because yeah. I've really only been in the greatest hits mode, but they're fantastic. But let's take a let me just throw on um, let's take a quick break yeah, and throw on "Last Train to London," which is a song that probably nobody will remember, but it is a great disco rock tune in the ELO sweet spot. And then we'll come back and do what are you listening to in top ten. Back to the Brother 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 podcast. We are going to end this episode like we end every episode with me asking the mind clearing question of what are you listening to? Yeah, and uh, I'm going to tell you because I'm prepared. And it's uh, most of these episodes, I feel like I'm two books and, and two TV shows behind Wyndham and Christian, and uh, they've already talked about all of them. So I'm sure you've talked about um, 
There There by Tommy Orange, which I'm finally reading uh, per your recommendation and absolutely loving. And uh, I won't go into a lot of detail because I believe you name-checked that one on the pod, right? Lance? I think I did, but if not, yeah. re- re-remind people because it's, yeah, so, it's one of those you know, books that's worth it. Yeah, so a group of Native Americans living in, in um, Oakland and various degrees of, uh, you know, sort of suffering and, and pro- everyday problems all going to a powwow. And uh, it's just like... Uh, a really a first book by Tommy Orange and um, I spent a lot of time in, in that area for work so for me uh, it's a familiar place but I also just think the story is amazingly told and uh, like it's um, really 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 um, just well done so if you're a fan of books it's not super long I, I'm burning through it and, and really enjoying it it's and great it's, uh, just a cool different story Excellent. Um, the other thing I was just going to name check too is uh, I battle constantly with my girls on music, or not battle constantly. I actually kind of let them listen to whatever they want, but um, you know, rightfully so for their age, they're they're very into Ariana Grande. So I've gone back to an album we talked about when it first came out, the Thank You Next album, and um, completely like you know had a weekend of listening to it, um, start to finish. It's such a great record and. Uh, she really is taking the throne to me of like the queen of pop right now. I mean, is is completely a different level than the Taylor. Not that I'm a fan, but the Taylor Swift of the world certainly uh, the old guard like Madonna and I'd even say Beyonce right now like is really kind of taking over the pop uh, mantle. It's a good album. Cool, cool. Well, I am going to make a a major recommendation, um, and uh, on on a movie called Booksmart, which I feel like was released but not completely embraced or well publicized but uh um you know I, I find things out after the fact like that it suffered for its title and, and things of that nature but it's a movie i loved uh jeremy saw he was a little less hot on but um i thought it was fantastic i've seen it twice in the theater and uh it just made me happy it is a High school movie, which I am uh, a sucker for, and a rare high school movie where you know, and, it, and I think you know, you can see some of the effort, or you, at least you realize it in, in real time that um, it's a high school movie without the cattiness and nastiness of your typical high school movie, and um, in a, and at the same time, it's still really funny and energetic and fun. It's Olivia Wilde directing. Um, uh, a number of actors that I'm sure will be are up and comers, but um, yeah, um, Beanie Feldstein, who was in Lady Bird, and actually I don't really recognize anybody else in the entire movie besides Jason Sudeikis. So um, no, I would say the same. Yeah, and uh, I did enjoy it. It is a feel good movie, and I'm a teen movie fan too. I just would warn listeners: do not um, read too much or, or watch the preview prior, or the trailer prior, because that kind of stole some jokes from me. But it is a good movie. I loved it. Anyway. You want to put a song on the one trillion? I'm gonna let you go first because I think um, you you know kind of have a hunch of what direction you're going. But you know, oh, do know. you? And I like to be surprised. Hmm. Um. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that day. Um, you made it go. Actually. Is My Sweet Lord by George Harrison on there? I don't think it is. Ah, no, and it should be. It's it is such now. a beautiful song. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. That's like, uh, 
the first time people always talk about Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, and uh, the first time I ever understood what the fuck they were talking about was that song. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. Um, I'm going to go with uh, a song that you might be surprised with, and I don't know if you and Christian love, but it's a song that I ended up, when this band uh, played live off of uh, the Soft Bulletin tour, I... Um, was not a fan in real time, but realized how great this song is. And I'm going to go with "Don't Use Je- She Don't Use Jelly" by Flame Lips. Nice, I love it. I do love that song. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's catch up soon and uh, have a good week. Talk to you later. Sounds good. Later. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.